one of the biggest developments that you have to make as a leader as your organization grows and then ultimately scales is you've got to separate out your own desires and needs from the desires and needs of the organization. And too many leaders conflate those two things. And so they're not willing and ready to make the behavioral changes to allow the organization to grow. And that can become a hindrance to the growth. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Fran Leibowitz, humanity is no substitute for good personality. Our guest today, Dave McKeown, helps teams excel by doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. He's the CEO of Outfeld Leadership and the author of The Self-Evolved Leader. Dave's spoken audiences such as the Inc. 500, GroCo, Bank of America, more, and writes a weekly column for Inc.com. He's also the host of the podcast, Lead Like You Give a Damn. Dave, welcome. Excited to have you on the Elevate Podcast. It's great to be here, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, I think... Uh, it's probably maybe five, six, seven years ago in Boston was the last time I saw you. It has been a while and how the world has changed, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could have said that if it was six months ago. But uh, <laughs> So mom is interested in the, in the beginning. Tell me a little bit about you know, your early career, childhood. What were the formative experiences for you that kind of put you on your current path? Sure, happy to. So um, I'm from Northern Ireland originally, not from uh, sunny Southern California where I currently reside. Um, and I grew up uh, in the backdrop of a fairly tumultuous geopolitical situation in, in Northern Ireland. We were at the back end of what was called the Troubles back then, which was a, a super interesting well, I say interesting, it was a terrible time, but uh, interesting in terms of watching how, how the leaders and politicians evolved their stances and positions to try to get us to you know a positive place in the peace process. And it, it just growing up there twigged something in me about the notion of leadership and what it really meant to actually lead a group of people towards a, a common goal and set about, I guess, a lifelong pursuit for trying to understand what good leadership meant and, and then ultimately led me to wanting to help other people develop their own particular leadership vision and skills and, and, you know, brought me on a long journey to where I am today. Yeah. And you, you, I'm guessing you had, you know, you worked with your dad for a while. He's a pretty prolific uh, speaker and CEO and had a lot of access. I'm guessing you had a lot of access to business leaders uh, much earlier than most people. Certainly, the just the notion of what business is and what it meant. Um, my dad was a serial entrepreneur, and then moved into consulting and, and coaching. And it, there was always it was always this weird thing because he was always off doing stuff. And you would go to you know school, and it would be that whole session of like, well, what do your parents do? And you know, there'd be people that were like, well, my mom's a teacher, and my dad's a fireman, and my dad's a lawyer. And every time I asked my parents, I was like, what does dad do? And they were like, well, your dad tells other people how to run businesses. And I was like, that sounds like an interesting line of work to be in. And um, it certainly encouraged in me this notion, this desire, this understanding of what it meant to to start and, and run a business. And I think that was definitely ingrained in me from, from an early age and ultimately ended up with me working in the family business at some point, which was how you and I met. Yeah. And so what, what, 
where were your early either inspirations for leadership or, you know, I, I actually find a lot of people who get interested in leadership have sort of an anti-leadership thing that they've seen <laughs> either in school or somewhere or they're like, yeah, not that. So what, what, when did you sort of get exposure? Do you remember any kind of specific uh, instances or, or groups or communities that formulated that? Funny enough, um, we were brought up um, in the church back in Northern yeah. Ireland um, in a sort of charismatic evangelical church. And there was a lot of core principles of leadership that they would try to teach throughout the organization, you know, trying to manage an organization of any size. And you need to teach um, you need to teach folks how to be good leaders. So whether it was at the kind of meta level of the church leadership in and of itself or a lot of the smaller groups and committees that they would have. And, you know, in my early days, a lot of the quote-unquote leadership experts or people like John Maxwell, Ken Blanchard, uh, Stephen Covey, who all kind of had a similar faith-based approach to leadership and what it meant to, to be a good leader. And that probably followed with me until my late teens and early 20s. That was where a lot of the earlier teachings of, of leadership for me, I guess, came from. And then once I graduated from university and moved into the corporate world, I, my first job out of college was working for Accenture, big global IT company. And that was probably one of the big switchovers then away from, okay, here was all of the early foundational stuff around faith-based leadership. Okay, what does it mean to be a good leader in a corporate setting? And so that sort of rounded out my education for me a little bit. All right. So you eventually, where'd you go after Accenture? Uh, So I was with Accenture for about three years back in the UK. Um, Really enjoyed it. Great place to kind of just you know, carve a few tools. Uh, and then in about 2012, I moved over to the States for the first time to the East Coast. And that's when I started working for the family business. So uh, yeah. dad had a, has a company called Predictable Success. So I joined him in 2013, I think, and started working with him then. All right. So then you made the leap to start your own business and, and you started working on, on your book, uh, The Self-Evolved Leader. So how do you define self-evolved in the context of leadership and, and in the book? Uh, if for me, the core of a self-evolved leader is somebody who takes responsibility and ownership for their own growth and development. I think we've, over the last number of decades, ceded to our organizations the responsibility to grow us and develop us. So I'll come and work for somebody. Uh, I'll do a good job. They will you know, give me the experience, the tools, the training that I need to grow and develop and my my career will will move. And I think that we have to reclaim that a little bit and say, well, aren't we responsible for our own growth and development? Aren't we responsible for becoming better leaders merely for the fact that there is value and and character and being a good leader in and of itself? Um, So that was the crux of it. And and I wanted to write a book that that anybody could pick up and say, you know what? Yeah, I I do want to grow and develop. And here's a really simple path or, or roadmap for me to do that. So that's interesting. Does that imply whether, again, do you own your, do you own your growth or, or the company own your growth? I mean, does that imply that one of the core principles of, of leadership is sort of the willing, constant willingness to sort of reinvent yourself? I think it has to be. I, I think that the minute that you as a leader say, you know what, I've reached a certain pinnacle, I've learned all I can learn, there's not much more for me to, to, to grow or develop, you're, you're walling yourself off 
from a whole bunch of stuff. One, just joy and, and further um, satisfaction in, in your life and your leadership. But also, if you start to do that en masse at a team level or an organizational level, it's one of the, the fastest ways to, to ensure that somebody's going to come in and take the knees out from underneath you because you're, you're, not, you're not constantly surveying what's out there and, and what we may need to develop or grow in in order to stay relevant in our in our marketplace. So I, I absolutely think it's one of the core tenets of great leadership is that you're just continually pushing to grow and develop and learn. Well, I guess there's two things, right? There's the marketplace evolving, and then this dovetails a little into some of the work you did at Predictable Success. But then there's the, what leader does that company need as it goes from a, a 1 million to a 10 million to a you know, a 50 million revenue company, it's, it's different, right? I, I, you either evolve or the company gets a new leader, right? Absolutely. But I think that the worst thing that you can do, however, is, is to say, I'm just the way that I am. And I'm not even going to try to take a look to see uh, what would be required of me to grow as a, as a leader. I think you've got to be conscious of making those decisions and there are plenty of leaders that say, yeah, you know what? I'm not the right person for the next stage of growth. That's awesome. So long as it comes from a, a deep understanding of who you are as a leader and what the organization needs, uh, and then you get to go and, and play in the sandbox that you want to play in. Um, but I, I think what is sad is whenever a leader just says, you know what? Those, that's not my strength. I can't do it. Therefore, I'm not even going to look at it. I'm not even going to try. I think we've got to be a little bit more intentional about how we make those sorts of decisions. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply.
Yeah. How many of those people are, I guess the first group is enlightened. And, and actually that's more rare. I probably, from what I've seen and maybe what you've seen where like the person says, you know what, I'm the CEO of this, go, this company, but I'm really the salesperson. It's what I like. I, I don't want to do all this other stuff. And so they, they self-identify. Are the other people maybe a little scared to do the work that they need to sort of cross to that next level? Yeah. I, it all comes down to, to ego, right? Because, and there's there's a couple of things uh, going on. One of the biggest developments that you have to make as a leader as your organization grows and then ultimately scales is you've got to separate out your own desires and needs from the desires and needs of the organization. And too many leaders conflate those two things. And so they're not willing and ready to make the behavioral changes to allow the organization to grow. And that can become a hindrance to the growth. If you're making decisions because they're based on what you as an individual leader want to have happen, not what's in the best interest of the organization, that can be a real a real hindrance. And it all goes back to that ego sense of it, which is, are you willing and, and able to put that aside to allow your organization to grow? And what about identity? Do a lot of people tie their identity too closely to the, to the role? I think it, oh, it's, it, it happens. It's, it's a huge thing, um, you know, particularly for founder owners. Um, their identity is the business and, they, and the business is them. And it's funny because in a lot of circumstances, you'll have a leader that can pay lip service and understanding to that and say, yeah, I, I, I get and understand that at some point I have to reshape my identity separately to the organization to allow it to, to continue to succeed. But when push comes to shove, they don't want to do it and they just they get back in and put their imprint and their fingerprints over everything rather than building a team of competent, capable leaders around them to help them grow the business. They want to be known as the center, as the, as the middle of that universe, rather than relinquishing the control that they need to. And I don't know why it's come to mind as we talk about this, but whether you like the guy or not, you just think about Mark Zuckerberg and the transitions that he has likely had to go through on a personal level from starting as a coder in his basement bedroom to literally now leading a company that's so heavily involved in public issues. You can't allow your ego and your identity to be so, to be so tied to the decisions that are made on an ongoing basis to, to allow that to happen. You've got to be able to craft two separate perspectives. Yeah, I don't think we, we I always sort of equate that to sports, right? But that's, doing that is, is more once in a generational than I think people really appreciate. I think it's kind of like a LeBron James <laughs> or Michael Jordan or someone that can really go from startup to running a public company. I, the, the, the personal evolution that is required is just, I think, unfathomable to most people about what that would take. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and I think you're right. Not everybody can, can do that. Where it becomes, and which is great and fine and wonderful. And, and you don't have to make the transitions that you don't want to. So long as you're being intentional about it and you, you make a very clear distinction, the worst thing that a leader can do is say, I'm going to make personal transitions for the betterment of this team or this organization and then not do it and then just kind of gyrate between wanting to do it but not doing it, wanting to do it but not doing it. Like just pick a lane and then make the decisions based on, on that. Uh, it's one of those you can't have your cake and eat it. Yeah, I, I, we danced around this, but just to circle it up, like I, I think what you're saying and what I agree with is there's no wrong choice. So if, if you got a business of seven or eight million dollars and you said, look, I don't, I don't like this stuff. I actually, I like the selling. I want to do the selling. I don't have an ego. I want to bring in someone to do this stuff. Like 
that's the right choice, right? But if you say, you know what, I want to be the CEO of this company. I want to, I want to survive 10 million, 20 million or whatever. That's also fine, but you need to really commit to what needs to be done, which is not easy. And it's, it's probably re unlearning a lot of stuff that you've learned and, and reinventing it because typically for most companies, you're talking multiple, you're talking four CEOs, you know, maybe from inception to going public, if, if not more. Uh-huh, very much so. And, and actually, I think where, where the folks that are successful in making that transition, they say, I want to build, I want to go from seven or eight million to 10 to 20 to 50, not because I want to build a business that's 10 or 20 or 50 million, but because I want to learn what it means to lead a business of 10 or 20 or 50 yeah. million, because that's where my learning comes from. That's your, your likelihood of success is far greater when you start from that perspective than, well, I can just take my, I've, you know, I've built this business seven or eight million. Let's just one plus one equals two, let's just keep going and adding more. And the businesses will change, but I don't need to. And I, I see so many leaders, they want to make that transition. They want to make that leap to 10, 20, 50, 100, 500, whatever the, the number is, um, but not for the right reasons. Right. And, and so they, they end up doing more harm than good. So what are the five characteristics of, of effective leaders that you outlined? The first one uh, I talked a little bit about, which is they push for for growth. So they push for their own growth. And that means that they have a, a, a deep understanding of their own particular leadership strengths and weaknesses, and, and, and they want to grow in those areas that they need to, as we just talked about. Um, the second key thing for self-evolved leaders is that they, they lead from a place of vulnerability. Um, and I don't mean weakness when I say that. I mean a, a place of saying to their uh, team, you know what, those old days of leading through certainty are gone. Uh, our leadership models used to be founded in the principle of our leaders need to know the way, show the way, and go the way. They need to be at the front. They need to be certain of the direction that we're going in. And and I think we've got to the point where there are so many variables in our world, um, and it's so complex that anybody turning up and saying, I know 100% where we're going is either a liar or a fool. And what our people want from our leaders is somebody that says, hey, I don't know all the answers. Here's my best guess based on the data and what I've seen before. What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? Well, how about we plan to go in this direction? Doesn't it sound like it's going to be awesome? And, and then they go implement. So leading from vulnerability rather than certainty. Um, there's a flip side of that, kind of, I guess, the, the other side of the same coin, which is uh, in order to lead from a place of vulnerability, you've got to practice deep empathy. We've got to have a deep, understanding of our people and what's going on in their lives and how they feel about any given situation and and to be as empathetic as possible. And then the final two are self-evolved leaders feel a real deep sense of connectedness between them and their team. It's not like that old metaphor where everybody's a cog in a well-oiled machine. It's like, well, actually, we're, it's more like we're all organisms in the same, or um, we're all cells in the same organism, that there's such a, a profound impact on what I do as a leader on the people around me. So we need that sense of connectedness. And then the final uh, characteristic of a self-evolved leader is they, they operate from their locus of control. And what I mean by that is they're really really clear on the areas that they can have control and influence over, and they work very hard in those areas to be successful, but they also understand there's a whole bunch of stuff that they can't control or influence. And so rather than sitting and complaining about that, the external stuff that they can't control, they focus very much on those those areas that they can. So they operate from an internal locus of control. Yeah, and that's very relevant today, probably more than ever. There's a ton that people don't control, but I think people 
particularly, you know, in this crisis are confusing, you know, lumping everything into the bucket of they don't control versus what they can step in and control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I've been working with my clients on is just helping them draw that mental picture of, okay, you know, let's draw a circle and just write in there all of those things that you can control. And then outside of the circle, write everything that's outside of your control. And, you know, as Covey says, back in the day, the more that you push against your area of control, the more that you start to have influence on those things that that maybe were not within your control, but you've got to be clear on where the demarcation point is in order to start doing that. And I think where folks are feeling a lot of fear and anxiety is because they haven't taken a step and taken a breath to say, okay, what what can I do today to make this better or help us get through it? Yeah. I mean, I I talked to a friend, CEO of business this morning, he was down 40% uh, in April and they just accelerated their three-year plan for online in in one month, <laughs> essentially, and shifted their event online, shifted their whole thing, and and ended up almost doubling their revenue <laughs> from the same That's point awesome. from last year, right? So you can look at these situations from two sides of the same coin. Like, oh, all of this happened. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, here's what I can now do, mm-hmm. given that reality. Uh, yeah, very much. And, and actually, back to some of those characteristics, uh, at the minute, people are... E- are struggling because they're either leading through fear, which is because they don't understand what they can control, or they're leading through false certainty where they're saying, you know, we've been through stuff before, you know, we'll get through the other side, which I I just don't think is true. We have been through crisis before, sure, and we've got generic models of crisis management, but never one of this magnitude affecting so broad and so deep. And so that's why I advocate also more for particularly now leading through vulnerability, which says, yeah, that whole bunch of stuff's happened and that has, you know, put us in a really, really difficult spot. We cannot lead from certainty, but what we can do is take a, an understanding or a checklist of what we do know to be sure, to be clear, and start to build off of that. And so we're seeing innovation come out as a result of this. People are shifting more online. They're, they're, they're changing entire business models. I had a client I was talking to a couple of weeks ago that was a uh, their entire business model was was business to business and they've now had to just create an entire business direct to consumer model and, and it's plugging the holes and the gaps for them. So there's there's definitely ways to innovate through this, but you can't lead from through fear and you can't lead through certainty. Yeah. And you know, I've heard a lot of smart people. The only thing they're certain of is we're not going back to January twenty twenty. Right. If you're just waiting for it to go back to normal, you're making a big mistake. Yeah, huge, <laughs> absolutely, and and you know I I think somewhere between the hysteria and the fingers in the ears lies the truth, yeah. and you know I I don't want to sit at the end of the hysteria line and say everything is changed forever in such a big profound way, but it has certainly changed in a way that's going to have a long and a deeper impact than a lot of us know. Right, similar to nine eleven, right? right. Yeah, going to the airport was never the same. Right. There are a lot of things that were never the same. Uh, it doesn't mean life didn't go on, but I, some of those are positive changes. Um, uh-huh. But yeah. So, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, you talked about in your book, and, and this, this is probably very relevant right now, but you talked about the issues that come up when leaders, you know, everyone likes to do their deep dive and get in the trenches. Tell me, what's your perspective on this? It sounds like you, you think that leaders do a lot more damage when they, when they, get, they get spend too much time in the, in the trenches than sort of hovering above a little bit. Uh, yeah, the, the subtitle of the book is Elevate Your Focus and Develop Your People in a World That Refuses to Slow Down. And, and I, I think what has 
happened culturally over the last 10 or 15 years is because we have pushed for speed in so many of our organizations and we have opened up our ability to be interrupted to by anybody and, and everything in whatever way that they want, we've sort of been living in this pseudo-emergency world in most of our organizations um, before any of this happened anyway, which yeah. was we're basically responding to whatever is loudest and most recent in front of us. And I see a lot of managers and leaders for good reasons basically saying, well, it's much faster, easier, and effective if I either tell you what to do when we have a problem or just step in there and do it for you or just be in the trenches with you. But what happens over the long run is when you see that the value that you add to your team is in telling them the answers or doing the, the work for them, you end up actually disempowering them yeah. because over time they just they develop this sense of learned helplessness, which is if I've got a problem, I'll just go to Robert and say, hey, Robert, what do you want me to do? And you'll tell me what to do or you'll say, leave it there and I'll, I'll go fix it. And then the leader becomes the bottleneck and they become frustrated because they're looking at their team thinking, gosh, why can't anybody take any accountability around here? And it's like, well, you've taught them not to. Yeah. And so not only does that lead to that cycle of mediocrity where we're doing okay work, but it's not great work. It's so hard for you to rise above the day to day or the week to week to actually think about the medium and the long term, to think about the direction of, the, of your team, to think about how you're going to develop your people. Because it just feels like we come into the office every day, fight all of the fires, leave, and then get up and do it all, all over again tomorrow. And, and so what I try to teach in the book is, is how to move away from that cycle towards something that's a little bit more sustainable. Yeah, the, the, there's some assessment or something, a leadership sort of failures and, and that I did with our team. And the com, most common one was adding too much value. Right. <laughs> it's not self-serving, but it's just you keep trying to come in and, and put your spin on the situation or add value, or it, which you basically you know, insert yourself as, as the toll booth. Right. And, and actually, one of the places where you can add the most value as a leader is counterintuitive. It's in silence. It's yeah. in literally just creating the space for your team to push for their own solutions. But we have been trained throughout our professional careers that silence is not a good thing. And it makes you look, quote unquote, like you don't know what's going on. And, and in the work that I do with my clients, one of the things I say is the best thing that you can do is if somebody has an issue or a problem and comes to you, is just to let silence do the heavy lifting. You know, maybe ask a couple of open-ended questions to help them come to their own conclusions, but don't try and fill the gaps in with your perspective or your, or your understanding. Because like you said, you can add too much value. Yeah. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE, 
right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So how do you think about today, uh, given this, this enlightened model of leadership we just talked about, what's going on in the world in terms of sort of governmental and civic responses versus business versus we're seeing all types of leadership in, in, in real time. And I know, I mean, there are a fair amount of global listeners on the podcast, but I think the U.S. is, is a pretty interesting thing, too. I mean, we're, we're really also seeing just the personalities at each state level, right? Never, yeah. never, I mean, governors are usually, no one could name any governor and they're sort of like a, an afterthought. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure that people outside the U.S. appreciate both the challenge now and that, you know, you have leaders of each of these states, you have a federal leadership thing, and there's, there's a lot of complications going on and, and not a lot of people working together. So what, what's your, I know that's sort of a very open-ended question, but I'm, I'm curious, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you're in California. I actually think uh, your governor's getting very, you know, high marks. What what leadership styles are are resonating with people? Gosh, what a broad! I mean, take the universe of leadership, yeah. right? <laughs> um, let me just touch on business for for a minute, and then I'll work my way yeah. up. But because I think we're seeing something interesting at the minute, which is what what are our leaders, our business leaders' response to the human side of this, and ultimately around uh, virtual working for the long term versus no, you got to come back into the office. And we've seen a lot of companies the last couple of weeks uh, with differing approaches to that. You know, some. Uh, Facebook and Google are saying, well, you can work from home until the end of the year. And Twitter's, you know, Jack's come out and said, well, you, we, we may never go back to working in an office. Uh, and he, there was a quote that I read the other day where he said, the decision to reopen our business is ours, is the leadership team. The decision to return to the workplace, to the office is our people's. Uh, and I think that where businesses are going to be successful is over the long term, when they reclaim the humanity of leadership and, and develop a more human centric approach to it. So rather than just thinking about, 
you know, the old Jack Welch way of maximizing shareholder value. Yeah. How do we actually develop our people and, and, and provide somewhere where they grow and that they're protected and they're safe? So at a business level, I think we're seeing that. I think from a governmental response, I mean, you're right. It's showing probably for the first time to most people the intricacies of the linkages between local, state, and federal government. and. Yeah. And not just the links and the intricacies, but what's constitutionally right, good, and valid. And, and you know, it's sad for me that a lot of the debate and the discussion is, is based more around whether you're right-leaning or left-leaning. Yeah. That clouds a lot of the discussion that's out there. Uh, I think that you've got to you've got to take it on a state-by-state basis and say, well, okay, who's leading through through data? Who's really balancing both the economic crisis and the public health crisis in, in a way that makes sense? Um, because it sort of has come to this point where we're now arguing that you're either on one side, you're either we've got to fight the pandemic or we've got to fix the economy. And, and that's not helpful because we've got to figure out a way to do both. And so the approach that I think that is becoming most useful is when leaders are coming out and saying, the health aspect of this is not likely going away for any any length of time. So how do we find a way to protect our people whilst opening the economy, whilst ensuring that um, you know we're trying to get back on our feet, whilst looking at to the data and not leaning to one extreme or the other of this? And we're seeing pockets of that. And then, unfortunately, we're seeing pockets of the extreme on both sides of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know a lot of your writing is something I agree with. We talked about, you know, kind of vision statements are, are rubbish. But but I actually think right now what people need and what we're lacking is is a clear vision and cohesive yeah. strategy. Yeah. You're right. What, one of the existential issues for the U.S., which we're seeing for the first time in hundreds, is, is, is constitutional, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's federal versus states' rights that have never been tested before. Like, does a right. governor have a right to close the state and not let anyone enter out like no one actually knows whether that's that's legal or not so right there's some things like that but I, I think that what's interesting is we're, we're and again maybe that's because there's pockets of culture I think it's an interesting analogy but I I don't think there's a unified vision or strategy that anyone's willing to rally around no and I mean you know that comes from it's got to come from the federal government you know yeah. there's got to be a clear purpose and and set of goals that we're working towards that we stick at and work through but the the not only is the initial messaging confusing as it comes out but it changes or we flip-flop from day to day just depending on a certain person's mood and um you know you've got i think where governors are doing their best you, know, you look at cuomo in new york you look at newsom in california you look at murphy in in new jersey um the ohio governor the, the, also, I, yeah, yeah dewine's doing a good job they've sort of said well okay we're lacking that vision from a federal level let's let's put together our vision on a state level and, and I think that that's where you're going to get clarity around what's happening next. Because at the end of the day, people want clarity. They, they want to know what the actual process is and, and what it's going to look like as, as we emerge from it all. Right. And, and I think people are gravitating. You know, it's interesting with Cuomo, the number of people around the world who are watching his briefings mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I think he's an excellent communicator. Right. Um, he is an, a, a very good communicator, and 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 there's funny enough a degree of vulnerability in, in what he says as as well. And <laughs> it, you know, it, it's funny they keep asking him now, is he going to run? And he's just like, well, no. You know, my job is to be an excellent governor, and and that's what I'm going to do. And 
it's just a, a fascinating exercise, unfortunately, obviously under terrible circumstances, but just to watch how history is going to look back and say, here is what the good, here's what good leadership looked like and, and what it didn't. And actually, I think what we're being tested on across the board at the minute is not just the ability to set that vision, but actually to stay to it, uh, even as it's as it gets difficult and tough. Um, because I know there's just this sort of growing sense that people are struggling to do the things that they're being asked to do. Yeah. So rather than just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, forget it all, forget the last two months, let's just you know go back to the way it was, there's going to be an, an essence of who can hold true to it based on the data to ensure that over the long term we're, we're protected. Yeah, I think when we look back, this will be a defining moment for most leaders. I mean, you, you public, private, wherever you apply some pressure. Most people can do a good job when things are, are good, but you've had, you know, you've had some people just completely fall off mm-hmm. and others that no one knew of who are now household names. And, and the difference is you just applied some pressure and, and you see sort of who rose to the occasion and who sort of bowed out to the occasion. So I, I, I think there'll be a pretty big shift. It's going to be a generational shift, absolutely. And I mean, my hope is that on some level, it'll it will reset us back towards viewing the human element in all of this. And and I'd love to see a generation of of new leaders rise up. You know, it's funny. I was texting a friend of mine the other day. I was like, "Us millennials, we really have had a tough ride of it, just in terms of just the the global economy and the major life events just being sort of crammed into two decades or so, and the fact that everybody hates us because we think they think that we're all <laughs> whining entitled people, which is another conversation for another day. But you know, you look at at then the millennial generation who are now leading owning companies. And, and have all of this societal and cultural trauma that we've gone through, I hope that it will it will cause us and then the Gen Z below us to reclaim our, our humanity and how we lead things and, and to not push growth for the sake of growth in, in a monetary perspective, but to seek growth for the sake of growth in a, in a human perspective. I think that's a great perspective. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So Dave, last last question. What's a personal or professional mistake, uh, and it could be singular or repeated, that you've learned the most from in your career? <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, it's a logistical one, and I'll I'll um I'll explain it with the probably the most humorous anecdote about it. Um, I I used to travel a lot. Don't 
do it so much anymore, would, would yeah. like to get back to it at some point. And in some ways, I, I really have my travel schedule and process down. And in some ways, it just goes, I just do something so stupid. And so two years ago, I was flying back from uh, Uruguay. I was doing a workshop out in Uruguay, and I had to uh, transit through Panama. And the incoming flight was delayed, and so I had a really tight connection time. And I couldn't miss my, my connection because the next day I had to be on a flight to the UK. So it was like I had to make sure that I, that I got it. So we land, and I've got like 15 minutes to make the connection. I'm at gate 63, I think, of like 64 in Panama Airport. I've got 15 minutes to make the connection. I get off. I look at the board. says LA, gate 2. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, that's all the way over the other side of the airport, which is a fair enough hike. And so I start to do that ridiculous airport half walk, half run, realize that I'm less fit than I should be, wearing a jacket, all, you know, and I'm, I'm just like, oh, this is awful. Managed to get to the gate, I'm uh, dripping with sweat, uh, I'm, you know, huffing and puffing. I hand my ticket in, and the lady looks at it and says, um, this is the wrong flight to LA. I look at her and said, what? She said, yeah, there's another flight on the exact same airline leaving like literally three minutes later after this one, but it's at gate 62. I look at her and say, are you kidding? I just came from gate 63. So I have to sprint all the way back across the airport. By the time I actually get there, they're about to close the doors. I give the ticket and I sit down exhausted. I'm dripping in sweat. And I just realized the one lesson from all of that is whenever you've got a tight connection, take the two minutes that it takes to look at the board and actually just ensure that it's the right flight that you're trying to get at the right gate rather than running across the airport twice also known <laughs> as measure twice cut once yes very much so i mean i wanted to blame the airline because i thought because exact same air, airline i'm like who runs two flights three minutes away from each other on the same airline going to the same city but yeah. that, that that would not be mature of me or self-evolved so and by the way, there's a universal law of, I was going to say of the universe, but that was, so it's just a universal law that if you are late for your flight, your flight is never late. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> it's literally never happened to me. And it's I would so say true. 80% of my flights are late, you know, normally, but on the 20% of the times I'm late, the flight is never late. Yes, that is absolutely <laughs> true. Great. Well, where can people learn more about uh, you and your work? Uh, if you're interested in the book, go to selfevolvedleader.com. And if you'd like to learn more about uh, the coaching and consulting and training work that I do, go to outfieldsleadership.com. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks for joining us today. It's been, it's been a long time, but it was great to uh, have you in and hear everything you've been working on since then. Good to talk to you too, Robert. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Dave and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. I do have a favor to ask. If you enjoyed today's episode or you've enjoyed the Elevate podcast in general, don't be selfish. I'd love it if you could help leave us a rating or review. It really helps new users discover the show. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is hit the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down, and you can leave a review or rating in just a few seconds. Thanks again for your continued support. And until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. 
Here's why I love Darius and the Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.